The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Okay, we are live. Uh, welcome to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, a mo- uh, podcast about movies, not a movie about podcasts. That's what I was about to say. Uh, I am joined again by my awesome co-hosts, Daniel Harper and Paul. How are you guys doing today? Good. Tonight? I, I kind of want to see a movie about podcasts now, but uh, other than that, you know. Well, isn't Tusk about podcasts? I think is it? I haven't seen that one, so... To, you know. to some degree, I think it is. But yeah, uh, we're going to be talking about a movie that uh, Daniel wanted to do this week, and uh, we'll get into that probably not shortly, because we do have a lot of housekeeping to get through, and it's been a couple weeks since we've actually recorded together, so we will get to that. But uh, before we start uh, that, I'm going to get into a little bit of praise we got from uh, our friend Stu from the Midnight Movie Cowboys. He went out of his way to actually sort of pimp our uh, podcast uh, on their Facebook page uh, last week, and he made a note of how much he was uh, enjoying our sex comedy series. Uh, he Apparently he was sort of binge listening to us for that week, and he, th- he thought our uh, sex comedy series was uh, good enough that he actually started breaking out some of his old uh, sex comedies and stuff that he had on some of these, like, uh, bundle DVDs and stuff that you can buy with, like, four or five films on them or whatever. So uh, thank you very, very much, Stu. Uh, very much appreciated, and... Uh, the Midnight Movie Cowboys, you can go on to our uh, Podbean page and see them linked on the sidebar there. Uh, one of my favorite podcasts, so uh, it's very much appreciated. Absolutely. I think we're going to get into comments here. We do have a little bit of a backlog of comments. not like there's a lot of comments, but there's like three very long comments from our friend uh, Greg. The first one I'll go to is he made a comment under the uh, commentary I did with my brother, the Night of the Living Dead remake from 1990. He says it's a very underrated movie and one of the best examples of a proper remake. Uh, He says too many remakes shit all over the original. Halloween 2007 is a good uh, example, he says, or copy it shot for shot, like the 1998 Psycho. Uh, or are completely different movies, like The Dawn of the Dead 2004. He says, this one seems to strike the right balance, and although it's not the most popular opinion, I think this movie is a lot more watchable than the original Night of the Living Dead, which does show its age. I do like how both movies give you that dirty, I feel like I need to take a shower feeling at the end. He said this would make my top five zombie movies list. Uh, any of you guys got any thoughts on that? Uh, I, have a, I have a confession. I haven't seen the 1990 Night of the Living Dead, so uh, I'm just going to have to be quiet about that. I yeah. do like it. I do like it a lot. I mean, I don't think... I think I like the original more than the, the remake, but I do like the remake. Obviously, it's amped up, and everything it needs to be glorified a little bit more. I think... Uh, out of all the people in the movie, Mr. Coopers do the best play off each other from the original to the to the remake. They're very mm-hmm. similar, but they're different in the same way. It's pretty interesting. Barbara's just basically Barbara goes to boot camp in in nineteen <laughs> in in the nineteen nineties. It's different, completely different. But uh, I thought it was pretty funny watching uh, Bill Mosley play Johnny in the beginning. Yeah, 
No, that stuff like that's pretty fun. I didn't actually know this it was Romero. I don't think that was a Romero remake. Was it a Russo remake or a Romero remake? Or well, Russo and Romero came back uh, as producers, and Romero, and Romero uh, rewrote the script a little bit apparently for this one. And yeah. then they, of course they got Savini to direct it. But yeah, uh, so, yeah Salvini was back from Vietnam this time, so he could actually do it. Yeah, and uh, I mean they wanted to they wanted to actually make some money off of Night of the Living Dead because they really didn't make any money off the first. Yeah, they time. they screwed up the first time and made it public domain basically by accident. I basically I because oh, they changed the title of the movie. Is it that was it? Would change the title of the movie right in the middle while it was getting released, and that screwed yeah, up all they, the they, paperwork. They, they registered the wrong title, I think it was. I right. think it was supposed to be like Night of the Ghouls or something like that that right. they registered instead of Night of the Living Dead. So. Right. Make sure you dot your T's and cross your I's. Or was yep. it the other way around? I can't remember. Yeah. And uh, But no, it was, it was good. I just When I first watched the remake, I, I knew some of the guys from the original had their hand in it. I always just thought it was really funny because I'm like, you guys know that that's not the Evans City Cemetery. Why? What are you doing? Like, you've been there before. You know how to get there. Just make shoot it, shoot it where you originally shot the damn film. Not make a mock-up set to make it look like the Evans City Cemetery. I thought that was yeah. pretty funny. Maybe they couldn't get it this time. Maybe they were asking too much money to uh, use the... <laughs> Maybe they were having a funeral and they had yeah, to draw a good place could, could But, I mean, it, it could have been like, oh, uh, this this location that you got for free the first time, yeah. uh, uh, we might want to charge you a few thousand dollars this I time. Think oh. they did, uh, I, actually, I think they did the actual shooting in Upper New York, upstate New York or something. Oh, like. wow. Okay. I don't think they shot a lot of this stuff. Well, they did shoot the one house. All the house scenes is in southwest Pennsylvania, I guess. But I don't know where the hell they shot that cemetery scene. Yeah. Unless unless um, there's a cemetery that I was told reportedly was the Night of the Living Dead Cemetery in near Port Marion, uh, Pennsylvania. Now, that might have been the remake they were talking about. Ah, so, okay. there you go. Right on. And he also adds, uh, thank you for the very professional commentary. Well, I don't know if I'd go that far because basically half it was me and my brother eating chips. So, uh, <laughs> then he makes a comment on our, uh, well, it was my uh, last intermission episode where I mentioned how I destroyed one of our slasher uh, episodes. Prom Night Maniac Cop? Yeah, I'm still kicking myself over that, but uh, he says... Uh, it's okay, that was just the best episode we ever recorded, so, you know. Yeah. And actually, it probably was the best episode of the ones we recorded, but... Fuck you guys. Uh, he, he says uh, he says on prom night I agree it's a slow burn that doesn't really have any payoff. He didn't really like it, and he says Maniac Cops got Tom Atkins in it, so I automatically like it. Really yeah. solid movie, and I think the sequel is actually as good, if not better. The third, not so much. Uh, I, I I definitely agree. And isn't there a spoofy remake off Maniac Cop called Samurai Cop? Sa Samurai Cop's not a spoofy remake. It's just it was, no, it was, it was just sort of like back in that day. What, what kind of buzzwords could you put together to make a great action film that will sell on video? Samurai uh, Cop. Isn't Samurai that a trauma cop. film? Shark, no. Sharktopus uh, Cop. Yeah, Sharktopus Cop. No, uh, Samurai Cop isn't actually a. Uh, that, that you're thinking I'm of thinking Sergeant, uh, Sergeant Kabuki, Kabuki Man and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Now yeah. that's serious shit. Don't. Oh, oh boy. We're, we're we're gonna have to do Samurai Cop at some point though because uh, every we every. Do, we could do back to back Sergeant Kabuki Man and Samurai Cop. We could do that too because uh, both of you guys, if you have not seen it, you both need to. 
uh, be uh, informed of the joys of Samurai Cop. Uh, I haven't seen it, so I'll, I'll watch it. Awesome. Well, we'll have to do it. He says, uh, as far as It Follows goes, he says, that's a great movie, although I felt it started better than it ended. I was really impressed with the direction and cinematography. The nudity was certainly appreciated, although I did find it annoying that the main actress who had sex three times in the film didn't show anything. Oh, and it did seem like these kids' parents didn't really give a shit where their kids were and what they were up to. Yeah, I think that's a problem you see in just about every horror film that involves Basically, any film that has teenagers in it, like that's that's just yeah. a thing. Like, do you know where it's 11 p.m.? Do you know where your kids are? Oh, probably having sex and killing each other. I have no idea. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and he says in regards to Dark Was the Night, he hasn't seen this yet, although I'll add it to my list. However, the ending, from how you described it, reminds me of the ending of The Prowler. One final jump scare for the audience that is neither earned nor does it make sense. I gotta disagree. I think the jump scare from the Prowler is a good sort of sort of references Carrie. I mean, you know, it's kind of a cheap jump scare, and I mean, jump scares are cheap by definition. I think they're just a cheap way to get a little bit of a scare or whatever. I think it, I think it works fine. I mean, it, it just sort of puts a little bit of a exclamation point on the trauma that the characters have uh, gone through uh, and how it may be lingering in their lives after the movie's ended or whatever. But um, I had no problem with it. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. He, he of course, he's talking about the scene where she, she uh, dreams of, she basically imagines going back up into the apartment and finding her dead friends in the apartment and the uh, body of the one guy there who is hanging in the uh, shower reaching out for her or whatever. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a way to end a movie. I, I didn't really mind it. I didn't really love it. Love it. it was just sort of like, oh yeah, I get it. All right. Yeah. Cool. You get, you get another, you get another little moment, whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's cheap. It doesn't go anywhere. I mean, I can see the argument, like, the ending of The Prowler can feel kind of cold for some people because there's no big diabolical plan or, like, super awesome reveal of who the killer is. It's like, okay, the killer's a bit of a surprise, and the motivations are sort of muddled. It just seems like, you know, the the fact that they're restarting the dance or whatever is... Yeah, there's a lot of lack of explanations, but some people find that the best part of it. Yeah, that's what I like about it. It's like, oh, the killer was actually the sheriff... Uh, the killer from the earlier time period was now the sheriff in the town, and he gotten away with it. And his psychosis sort of got uh, re-triggered by the fact that they were restarting the dance or whatever. And okay, that's you know the ex- explanations are still are probably a bit more nuanced if you go into it. But I mean that's enough to make the movie feel a little unsettling to me. And I thought it worked pretty well. I mean uh, that's just I, me though. I think they're kind of, I mean, without being an expert in the slasher genre or even, you know, but but I think there are kind of two ways of, of exploring this. You either have a really solid, methodical, like, psychological explanation, like where, where it's it's there, it's there from the beginning, it is fundamental to the way the movie works, or kind of ultimately, yeah, there's this guy going around killing people and the explanation is always going to feel kind of silly and I mean the ending of Psycho like you've got a psychiatrist who spends you know six or seven minutes describing the nature of the psychosis and ultimately it's like nobody cares yeah that's... I mean, you know does anybody go you know really I didn't get this film until it was all explained in the last six minutes like like nobody nobody gives a shit you know so yeah it's like um, we, we get it. He has a split personality. You don't have to fucking explain it to us in excruciating detail. The movie kind of played it out in the last hour and a half. We didn't need to sum, you know, sum up at the end. We got it already. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so moving on to his next, his last comment. This was on our uh, Just Before Dawn in Motel Hell uh, episode. 
He said he enjoyed both these movies, although I suspect uh, less than some of you guys did. He said Motel Hell felt like it ske uh, skewed a little too much into the comedy realm for me. Uh, as already mentioned, all the characters seem to have incredibly low IQs, and this started to annoy me. But otherwise, it's a decent little movie. He says as far as uh, just, just before Dawn goes, he enjoyed it quite a bit more. He says, as Paul says, the part where the killer jumps on the RV was very cool. Twist that there are two killers was very well done and completely caught me by surprise. Funny enough, I just watched another recent horror movie that used the same trick, but not nearly as effectively. Uh, I'll avoid mentioning the name of the movie to avoid potential spoilers. He says the final deep throat kill was certainly unique. Uh, he said he liked that these killers weren't the immortal slashers that became so popular in the 80s. They were just flesh and blood people, and once they went down, they stayed down. Overall, a very solid slasher, but I don't regard it as quite as highly as Lee does. Well, fuck you, Greg. You don't know yeah. what you're talking about. But he says both movies offer some, some nice boobies to enjoy, although Motel Hell does it better. Yeah, overall, I agree with everything that he said, especially disagreeing with you. I agree with everything. Greg is so smart. Let's get Greg on here. He's much better. Yeah, can we just go to a podcast with Greg? Because that's that's kind of you know where I'm landing on it. But, that's what yeah. it's starting. It's just what's starting to be because he's the only one to comment. So it almost feels like the first half of the podcast is the Greg half of the of the podcast, like the Greg segment. We should the just Greg. Get it's the Greg show. Letter, yeah, letters should. from Greg. You should have like a little theme to it. Oh yeah. Like letters that's from Greg. Greg. Yeah. I mean, you know, other people out there, don't be timid. You can make comments. They can be positive. They can be negative. You can suck our dicks, or you can punch us in the fucking nose. You we can prefer a little bit of both, though. I had really like a really vicious piece of hate mail directed towards me personally. I would love it, particularly if you go against my politics. I would, I would, I would absolutely appreciate that. That's a I'll personal start goal of mine. It up right now. Yes. Go ahead, please. Someone, someone get, get on this shit. Get it, damn it. All right, but uh, very, very much appreciated, Greg. Uh, thanks for the comments. Uh, sorry we didn't get back to him as, as soon as uh, as we could, but um, you know, fucking scheduling shit. And uh, but my my job seems determined to uh, ruin my uh, potential podcasting days. Uh, Is that what jobs are supposed to do? Yeah. Ruin your life. If I if I didn't have to, you know, do that pesky thing like pay bills and shit, I'd be podcasting fucking every night of the week. But uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, You'd be Kevin Smith. I get it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would be Kevin Smith. Uh, <laughs> probably, probably a little, little less pot smoking, but uh, I would be Kevin Smith. A lot, a lot more whiskey, a lot less pot. You know, you could, you could have a, a bald man on, on Batman. You know, podcast. <laughs> bald man on Batman. There you go. Fuck you, Kevin Smith. I'm coming for you, bitch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I, I guess we can uh, move on now to uh, what we've been watching lately, and I know uh, both Daniel and I, at the very least, have uh, a little bit of a list, so uh, I'll go to you, Daniel, first, if you'd like to start off. Sure. Um, the first thing I watched, I've, I've got, uh, well, I did watch Charade, the uh, Audrey Hepburn Cary Grant film from uh, 1963. I might have that date slightly off. Uh, I watched it because um, it was on Netflix, and I watched it. Uh, the only reason I'm mentioning that is because it's uh, amazing. It's directed by Stanley Donen, who also directed uh, Singing in the Rain. It is also out of copyright. It connects to the Night of the Living Dead thing that you guys were talking about earlier, uh, and which you know is kind of one of those things. Like today, you don't have that problem. Like if you create it, it's it's under copyright. They they changed the laws. In the seventies, mm. I think, but um, I didn't really have anything to say about that, so I was gonna leave it off. But then I thought, oh fuck it, why not spend? Watched it, seconds, do it. You know, one of the ones I really did want to mention was uh, I actually watched the Terminator, 
uh, the original uh, James Cameron Terminator because I had always kind of uh, interpreted that as a uh, sort of a James Cameron doing the slasher movie thing. You know, and, and really the whole mythology behind the Terminator is just explaining why he's the implacable, unstoppable killer. Mm-hmm. Like, really, if you, like, the whole time travel element, the whole, you know, all the mythology in that film just exists to explain why it's a killer that you can shoot at and not kill. Viewed as a slasher movie, and I and I watched it right after we finished the slasher movie series, just to kind of be like, what was all fresh in my mind? I mean, it's paced, it's shot, it's directed, it's it's a slasher movie, all but a name. There's a purity to it. Um, they made one sequel, it's a shame they never made any more sequels to that, because I, I think... Yeah, they, I mean, I... They they really could have ran with that franchise. Yeah, they, they really could have they really could have done something. I do love Terminator Two is kind of a, the philosophy, the big science fiction epic thing. Um, it's actually probably one of my just viscerally fun favorite movies I've I've ever seen in my life. But there is some purity to the original Terminator that I almost wish they'd never sequelized it at all. Other movies I watched, and I promise I'll I'll be quick about it. I did see The Act of Killing, uh, which is on Netflix, which is the documentary about uh, the essentially there was a genocide of communists that happened in the Philippines, no Indonesia, excuse me, in Indonesia in the uh, late 60s and early 70s, and uh, there was a filmmaker who spent uh, several years basically talking to people who committed these atrocities. And the thing is, it's sort of like, imagine if the Nazis had won World War II, and then like 30 years later, a filmmaker had gone around like interviewing people, and it's like, so, so what did you, what happened? Like, how did you put the Jews on the, on the, on the, on the cars? And like, how did you kill them? And uh, they're, they're happy about it. They're, they're boasting about it. And there's a lot of conversation about the veracity of some of it, um, if you kind of read some of the stuff. And, uh, but it's a, it's a really fascinating film because he kind of says, I want to reenact this and I want to work with you to reenact this in your terms um, it's one of the most disturbing films ever uh, there is a theatrical cut and a, a director's cut Netflix right now I watched the theatrical cut um, just because I hadn't seen it before I'll probably go and, and visit the director's cut at some point which is about 45 minutes longer it's fascinating it's absolutely if you're at all um, someone who is interested in kind of the psychology of how people commit mass murder or just kind of the, this culture around this it's absolutely worth seeing brilliant and it's worth uh, kind of reading some of the some of the articles around it like if you google it and kind of go and start digging into details there, there's a lot there's a lot of conversation about this film and what it means and a lot of um, kind of back and forth because these people who did all these murders are, are actually kind of welcomed as heroes. Like, yeah, you killed all the communists, and isn't that great? I mean, it, it, again, you know, to put another comparison, it's a little bit like if the, if the South, you know, I'm from the American South, so it's a little bit like, you know, interviewing people who lynched people, and it's like, yeah, I killed yeah. the Negro. Yeah, of course I did. Like, he deserved to die. He was, he was screwing that white girl. Come on, you know, and that's sort of the attitude they have. There was nothing um, hanging in the tree at the moment. We figured we'd put him in there. There you yeah, go. It's, it's, I mean, the, the, and then, like, getting them to reenact it and um, seeing the psychology of, like, you know, and they say, like, I'm a sadist. I'm, I, I, what we did was sadistic. It was something that needed to be done, but it was sadistic, and it was great, and these guys are, they're interviewed on television at one point, on, like, a, like, The View or something. Like, like there is this, like, daytime television show where it's, like, you know, oh, and these are our heroes who killed the communists back in the 60s, and it's, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating film, and um, the connection between like what the military role was versus what these uh, kind of low rent, just sort of dudes like doing it were, and all that sort of thing. Again, there's this big conversation about it, but uh, I think what the film has really done is it served to um, bring this event into public knowledge a little bit. 
um, people were talking about it. You know, that seems to be the big the big thing because this wasn't something that was secret, but it was something that people weren't talking about. And now people, at least in the West, are, are talking about it a little bit more. And I and I think it I mean, it's a fascinating, fascinating film. There's a there's a sequel um, that is uh, currently in theaters called The Look of Silence. Which uh, follows the uh, like a single person who's uh, I think like, the, the patriarch of the clan was killed in this in this um, thing and kind of following the like what the life of the people who were left behind were. It's uh, I don't know I don't know the details of the film because I haven't seen it and I'm avoiding details because I want to see it at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a the, the filmmaker did kind of come back and make a another film about this same sort of topic. So I am uh, really fascinated to get to see that at some point. But the act of killing is a phenomenal film. One of the probably one of the ten greatest documentaries I've seen in my life, and highly recommend it. Right on, I have to watch that one. I've got three more, which I promise I'll go very briefly on. I did uh, rewatch the killer, the John Woo film from mm-hmm. uh, the 80s. Just a great fucking action movie. Um, if you haven't seen that in a while, it's it's worth seeing. John Woo, I think, uh, once he came to America, and then you know, I mean, his his star is diminished. Like we yeah. really have not like no nobody really takes him seriously these days. I don't hear a lot of people talking about him so much, but like you look at that early work, and he's uh, brilliant. And um, that one is streaming on Netflix, and I just that was just one I didn't want. Oh, I saw it. Looking for the act of killing, and the killer comes up because you put in kill, and then it's right there. And I went, oh, I'll add that to my list and watch it. And I just watched it one night, and I'm like, yeah, that's great. And then the last one I'm going to uh, mention is uh, actually I I got on a uh, black and white kick. I've been I've been kind of like interested in watching black and white films and trying to kind of expand my knowledge. So I just started kind of looking through just anything I could find on Netflix that was that was not in color. <laughs> I was interested in film noir, so I added a bunch of film noir, and one of the films I added was a movie called Down Three Dark Roads, uh, which I added because I hadn't heard of it before, and I went, oh yeah, I'll click on it, and didn't really look at the, the summary, just kind of went, oh, and hit play on it. And it's not a film noir at all. It turns out to be a film uh, made in 1952, and it uh, follows a, an FBI agent who has three cases that he's working on, and basically is a love letter to the fucking Hoover era FBI. This is this is straight <laughs> up, you know, it's straight up propaganda essentially. Um, look at look at how brilliant the FBI is. They're gonna track down anybody who's gonna be a criminal. It's interesting. It's like 82 minutes long or something. It's it's probably worth a watch if you're you know just kind of in this era, but it's but it's straight up propaganda, and uh, that it's kind of fascinating to, to me. It was more fascinating as that than it was as a film. I, I do think that it's sort of an idea of like watching, and I, I don't know the uh, the TV series Homicide, Life on the Streets from the '90s, kind of did this mm. of like following detectives as they go about their day to day lives and their day to day jobs, and and like actually kind of following them in there like as they follow cases in sort of a, a realistic way and I think there could have been an idea of doing that in the 50s like seeing a film from that era that did the same thing would be amazing um, that's sort of the point of uh, Stray Dog the Kurosawa film from 49 mm-hmm. um, so, that. Um, so I, I would be totally down for that I'd love to see a, a kind of a modern remake of this maybe without the FBI angle but with a a kind of focus on like this is actually what the life of a what the day to day life of a, of a police officer is. Yeah, kind of worth watching if you're if you're interested in that sort of thing. Yeah, that's I had one more, but there's no reason to talk about it. So you know. Uh, yeah, Homicide, great series. My favorite TV series actually is Homicide: Life on the Streets. 
Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. Paul, you got anything you want to add? Anything you bought or anything else in the last little while? Well, I had a little bit of chance to sit down and watch a few movies. I watched uh, Zoltan, uh, Hound of Dracula. <laughs> uh, so I, I got a chance to watch that one, which is actually not a bad film. A little dark at times, but uh, for film quality, it reminds you of like a, a lower-budget Hammer film. Yeah, but it does. Uh, in America, uh, it's. I think it's made by the same people that made um, Mark of the Devil. I believe it's the same people who made Mark of the Devil. Uh, the one star for Mark of the Devil is actually in that. I think he's only done movies with them. I don't know how to describe this guy. It basically looks like a, I don't know, a wet sack of, of grapes <laughs> that just got dried in the sun for an hour. And then he looks, that's what he looks like. I don't know how to describe it. He's terrifying. I don't know. The, the look of this guy is terrifying. But overall, it's not a bad movie. It's pretty fun to watch. So it's more campy. So if you don't mind watching movies like The Boy Who Cried Werewolf and, you know, things like The Blood on Devil's Claw and things like that. You'll probably like Sultan, Hound of Dracula. So it's not a bad film. I was actually surprised. I thought it was just going to be shit on a stick, but it really wasn't. Um, after that, I watched Dead Heat uh, with Joe Piscopo. That was actually a really fun movie. That was a great 80s fun movie. Shoot them up. People that don't die, but they're not Terminators. But they're, uh, you know, re resurrected dead up villains. They're shooting up the whole time. And uh, you got the guy who played Cole Jack Night Stalker in there. And oh, the Christmas, yeah, yeah. you know, the Christmas story. So I mean, it was fun. After that, I I actually just watched a bunch of films I already have watched in my in my day. I watched all the special features for the Wolfman and the Howling, and then just sat down and watched those films the one day. Recently, we I just sat down and watched Dawn of the Dead again. Unfortunately, I don't have the extended long ass version, but I just I watched my version I have on DVD. And then uh, today I watched The Crazies. And, the original or remake? Uh, the original. And good I choice. just remember watching that. Well, I was like, God, this film is so good. <laughs> like, I haven't. Wa I actually have had The Crazies for a little bit. I've actually been to where they shot a lot of the stuff for The Crazies because I've been to Xenopoli and, and, and Evan, Evan City. So it was fun to just sit down and watch uh, The Crazies today and really start you know, seeing if I miss things. Probably one of my favorite funniest scene is when uh, the guy goes up and sees the old lady knitting, and then he comes up and she stabs the living shit out of him. And then after <laughs> that, she just sits back down, and she and the other guy comes up and says, "Ma'am, oh hello," you know. And it's just like, yeah, oh, this film is so good. Uh, I actually do enjoy the remake of the Crazies too. Surprisingly, I don't like a remake. Guy. I'm not a remake guy, but it was actually okay. I liked it too. Yeah. I yeah. like both versions. Yeah, the Timothy Oliphant is is really good in the remake. I mean, it's it's definitely kind of it's the dumb version, you know. If I can, yeah. if I can just kind of say that it, it it does drop a lot of the kind of Romero brilliance. But yeah. it's a fun movie. I, I like it a lot. It does get a little heavy-handed with the uh, the uh, <laughs> the military is murdering people towards the end. But I and love uh, my my favorite <coughs> element of the original is the fact there's that one competent guy who's like you know trying to figure out how this works and all this shit, and he's not being listened to, and then finally the system just collapses around him. And, you know, like if that one guy had just managed to get I just one got person it. to listen to him, then we could have, like, avoided uh, Global Holocaust. And that was, no, uh, we don't get to. Yeah. And that was that was Richard France who played uh, Dr. Millard uh, Rausch. Our, and if he would have just wore a military outfit instead of that yeah. stylish sweater. Who, who played our mascot as the, you know, yes. the scientist from Dawn of the Dead. Hey, same guy. Right on oh, that's science. nice. Yeah, exactly. Oh, same uh, guy. That's awesome. Yeah, it's the same yeah. guy. Yeah. 
Yeah, I yeah. need to. I haven't seen that in. I mean, I it's been probably almost ten years since I've seen the crazy. So I need to. I need to rewatch that. Yeah, yeah. He gets really angry. Um, I noticed that everyone in the movie decides that the only way they can be heard is yelling at each other. Yeah, they just keep yelling. You have to understand that what you wear could potentially save the world. So don't wear the stylish sweater in the time of a civil un- unrest. Wear yeah. a uniform. You need to. Yeah, that's the thing. He, he he gets he just basically gets caught up in the procedures. Like, oh, we gotta round all these people up and get them out of here. It's like you don't understand. I'm a scientist. I'm a scientist. I got the cure. Yeah. No, we gotta get you fuck out of here. And then he gets trampled. Basically, mm-hmm. it's like yeah, yeah it's um, the 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 brainwashed people that don't even know why they're there will follow any order. And if you don't fit it, you're you're gonna get pushed back into the into the refuge just like everybody else. Yeah, um, it's like the the system that caused the problem in the first place can't solve the problem because they, they basically keep making the problem worse and worse. In the original, it's a spreading problem. As they mm-hmm. they, they said as uh, he said, well, you know, a trucker could have took it, taken this out days ago, you don't know, but we have yep. to assume that it that didn't happen. Then you find in I think it was St. Louis, it's happening there too. And then mm. the guy gets, you know, and, and and the funny thing is the military just consider it a coup. Oh, you got one under your belt now. You'll be fine. Go to the next one. Yeah, you can solve it down there. And it's like, you know, you know what's going to happen to the town uh, that they just quarantined. It's, it's yeah. going to be this, it's going to be the same thing as Return of the Living Dead where they just drop a fucking bomb on it. Yeah. In the Evan City, yes, it's a small rural community because Pennsylvania only has one town, motherfuckers, and it's Bloomsburg. So don't call it a town, <laughs> not a town. Damn it. In the original, it is a spreading plague. And, yeah. and what happens is they could not, they could barely contain, and they didn't contain, but they could barely work around Evan City. Now they're going to a major city. Yeah, and so you get the impression that it's, it, it's something they're not going to be able to control. At yeah, all. it is basically the end of the world. Yeah. And now, in the original, in the remake, rather, it's a start stop, it's Night of the Living Dead. It has a yeah. beginning and it has an ending because they bomb the whole fucking place. There's no word of a spreading plague. It's done at the end. I, I think it's I think it's pretty much settled that we're gonna have to cover the crazies sometime soon. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 I I would love to do that. Yeah. We are the crazies. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> we should have named our podcast the crazies. The right? crazy. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, um, we'll, do, we'll do a sister podcast all about Romero me. and remakes of Romero. Yeah. And call it the crazies. I'm hard as a rock thinking about it right now. So we're good. Well, I've, I've I've actually been considering like doing like little offshoot offshoot podcasts that would only like run like for like five episodes or something like that. So that might be something we can consider in the future if we want to really like go like really specialize on a certain topic and just like and just like it. the like the career of the Olsen twins. We could do no, that. We definitely could do that. Yeah. yeah, I'd be down for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anything else, Paul? Uh, no, actually, that's it, pretty much. And I could barely put the world, the flesh, and the devil in my list to watch. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be more on that later. Uh, I got I got a chance to watch uh, Cold in July, which is sort of a neo noir uh, based on a story from one of my favorite writer, uh, writers, Joe R. Lansdale. Fucking fantastic! I really really loved it. It's it's definitely got a twist. It really it really sort of captures the style that uh, Lansdale writes in. It's got this sort of um, a lot of his stuff, like he writes about crime, he writes about horror, but it sort of falls into the like the weird fiction category more than it does like specifically like horror or crime. You would know Lansdale's stuff from Bubba Hotep and uh, the Masters mm-hmm. Masters of Horror episode incident on and off a mountain road, which were both exclusively pretty much horror but kind of weird, twisted in the same way. I really enjoyed it. It's got uh, what's his Michael C. Hall from Dexter or whatever his name is. Uh, in oh, it. nice. 
uh, Sam Shepard, uh, who is fucking awesome in this, and um, what's his name from Miami Vice? Uh, Don Johnson? Don Johnson, yeah, Don yeah, yeah. I, I can't think of Miami Vice if I don't put my pastel sport jacket on. Yeah, because usually I don't really think of roles of his that I really liked, other than like one or two. But this is probably All, all I have to say is listen to my heartbeat. Listen to my heartbeat. <laughs> But this is this is actually probably the best role Don Johnson's ever had, and I actually kind of want to see a spinoff movie with just his character in it because it was so fucking good. Um, really enjoyable. It's got some nice, really good twists in it. Uh, the ending, maybe the 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 way Michael C. Hall's character, the way he sort of goes along with things and the sort of path he takes, is maybe not a hundred percent believable. But I found the characters were strong enough that you basically you stick with it all the way through, and I found it really enjoyable. And in uh, Lansdale's uh, sort of typical fashion, there's a lot more going on in the story than what you would uh, expect because he writes in such a minimalist style, so you kind of expect everything to go by the book and be very uh, standard, but it really isn't. There's a lot of interesting twists. It gets really bloody in the end as well, which is also kind of typical of a lot of his stuff. So it's really good. Just thinking about Wes Craven, who passed away recently. Uh, I watched Nightmare on Elm Street again. I have watched it in, like, maybe 20 years. It's probably... It's, Probably been that long since I watched it. God damn it, it really doesn't hold up. Uh, <laughs> it really doesn't. I, I mean, I like a lot of Wes Craven stuff, but it's not the stuff he's most famous for, like A Nightmare on Elm Street and the Scream series. I like his, like, Serpent in the Rainbow, The People Under the Stairs, and Red Eyes. Music from the Heart? No, no, I don't really like that. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck that shit. Um, I, and I mean, I know Wes Craven's kind of, like, People, a lot of people like to comment on how he's sort of a guy who was sort of slotted into the horror thing because that's what he got popular with. So that was sort of what he was pressured to make because he's a kind of he comes from the same generation as like Romero and Carpenter and stuff. But he's a guy who actually worked within the system instead of basically just rebelling against it throughout his entire career. So he was always able to make movies, and but he had to make movies people sort of expected him to make more than anything else. Yeah, I watched The Nightmare on Elm Street. I like it, but I don't consider it like one of the greatest horror movies ever. Honestly, Freddy Krueger doesn't really hold up for me as a horror villain. I find there's a lot of stuff that's just really weak in the narrative of A Nightmare on Elm Street. And overall, just actually, I like Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 a lot better, which basically throws all the rules. Revenge. Yeah, which throws all the rules out, basically just throws a rule book out and basically resets the series to a certain degree. And that one has a very interesting subtext about, like, homosexuality and stuff that I thought, you know, there's actually a deeper message in that film. And, and of course, Craven really had nothing to do with that film, so there you go. But um, I just always liked Freddy because of his cynical, you know, making fun of people. He's killing it the whole time. It's more play. It's fun, more of a fun film. The only reason I hated a lot of Night or um, Nightmare on Elm Street is I hate Heather Longenkamp. Honestly, all the actors in that, except for uh, John Saxon, uh, Robert England, and Johnny Depp, all the rest of them are pretty bad in that film. Like uh, Johnny Depp, that was his first role, and he didn't even want to be an actor. He basically just got it as a job. He, he got in, uh, I think it was like the producer or something like that, knew him. His, uh, his friend, he went to the rehearsal with his friend that was rehearsing, mm. and the guy was like, what are you here for? And he's like, oh, I'm just here with a friend. Try this. Okay, we're going to hire you. And the funny thing is his friend ended up playing Freddy in the remake later. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the guy who played Rorschach in Walkman, yeah. uh, or Watchmen. Um, yeah, and that yeah, was, they, jo that was uh, Johnny Depp's friend that was trying to get Johnny Depp's role in the first movie. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's kind of weird. And Rorschach was the best in that movie. 
Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, uh, Johnny Depp was like actually really good in it as like a first timer. Uh, the rest of them were kind of weak uh, for the most part. And of course, John Saxon, he's the fucking man. He's the uh, man. He is. He is the fucking. He's like Michael Michael Ironside. It's like everything you see them in, they're like good, no matter even if the movie's absolute fucking garbage. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I wonder, like uh, John Saxon and uh, Tom Atkins in an epic deathmatch battle. I wonder who would win. <laughs> Speaking of Michael Ironside, I watched Turbo Kid, which is a uh, Canadian uh, New Zealand co-production, and this is one of my favorite movies of the year so far that I've seen. It's probably I saw be pictures my- of it. It's going to be in my top five. Uh, it's so good. Um, if any of you guys remember, like, Kong Fury, how everyone was getting their fucking panties all wet over Kong Fury, how awesome it was and shit. This takes the sort of elements Kong Fury does. It's got that 80s retro fetish thing going on, but mm-hmm. it's it's not winking at you. It's not going, look how cool we are that we're bringing up 80s fashions and stuff like that. It actually implements it into the actual world building of the film, and it works really well. It's basically a post-apocalyptic film. Uh, it, it feels very much like those sort of movies that were made in the 80s that were sort of like Mad Max, Mad Max rip-offs that weren't quite as good, but they were still kind of fun. It's actually got characters. It's actually got a story. It's got great performances, and I really, really enjoyed it. It's one I'd highly recommend anyone see. Another one I saw, Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which has been getting quite a bit of buzz lately. A little, little wordy title. Yeah, it's the... Um, it's it, the Iranian it, horror movie, right? Yeah, although it's shot in California, but they basically, it's supposed to be about a, because, of course, you couldn't shoot this movie in, in Iran. I mean, it, it just wouldn't happen because you could not shoot, you could not show, probably couldn't show vampires to start with, probably couldn't show a nudity, and you couldn't show violence and a lot of these scenes. But it's kind of interesting, but at the same time, it's just kind of really overhyped, I felt. It doesn't really work too well. It, it's it's all in black and white. Um, there's there's a lot of sort of spaghetti western-inspired stuff going on, but the narrative, I felt, was kind of weak. Uh, the performances are really good, but there's not a lot to work with. Might have to review it at some point so I can go more into depth about what I felt about it. I kind of liked it, but I didn't feel like kind of lived up to the hype that everyone's sort of giving it. But I, w- I will say the leads in it are really good, and there's really good performances. It's just... If you go in expecting like a a vampire movie or a movie that has much of a point to it, you're probably not going to find that in the film. Just if you want to watch something that looks really good, it's it's very well done. Like it's a really well made stylist stylistic kind of film. It's almost like if Slacker was a vampire film. And uh, one more I'll mention, and then we'll get on to the uh, actual movie we're going to be talking about tonight, uh, The Editor, uh, which is uh, made by Astron 6 here in Canada, who have been making a lot of sort of like retro throwback kind of horror films and stuff like that. This is sort of a semi-parody homage kind of love letter to uh, Giallo films, which we're going to be discussing Uh very, very soon. It's really well done. It's so fucking well done. I, I could probably go on for like, 40 minutes explain, trying to explain everything that goes on in, in it, but if you go into it, it you, you got to know it's kind of a comedy parody in a certain way, but it's also homage to Giallo's, and if you watch it, you feel like you're watching a Giallo. It, it's sort of like how Black Dynamite sort of sended up the uh, exploitation genre. This sort of does the same thing for Giallo's in a certain way. And it was really enjoyable. I thought it was really good. But there's a lot of humor in it, too. It's, it, a lot of it comes from, like, the dubbing, and, uh, like, they, they, they do it in a way where the dubbing's off and uh, the dialogue they spout is sounds like badly translated uh, Italian to English and 
all kinds of things like that. Re really, really enjoyable. I, I highly recommend people check this one out too. Uh, so if, if if anything, Turbo Kid and the editor definitely look for those ones. Yeah. Your, uh, and, your uh, mention of bad translated uh, it, Italian. I sorry to bring this up, but it just made me think of the Howling. The uh, the guy who did the music for the Howling. It was speaks Italian, and no one on the film crew spoke Italian. Mm -hmm. He uh, uh, Joe, Joe Dante got someone who knew who could speak Spanish from one of his old films, Hollywood Boulevard, mm -hmm. because we, they found out the uh, guy who did the score could p speak bad Spanish. So they spoke bad <laughs> Spanish to each other on the phone and worked out what they were gonna do for the score. <laughs> That's and awesome. So, like that is that. Well, you, if you gotta find a way to make it work, and they did. So that was pretty interesting. Morning, a missionary advertised with neon sign. He tell the native population that the civilization is fine. And three educated savages holler from a bamboo tree. That civilization is the thing for me to see. But bunga bunga bunga, I don't wanna leave the Congo. No 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 no. Bingo bango bungle, I'm so happy in the jungle, I refuse to go. Don't want no bright lights, false teeth, doorbells, landlords. I make it clear that no matter how they coax me, I'll stay right here. I look through a magazine the missionary's wife concealed. I see how people who are civilized bang you with automobiles. At the movies they have got to pay many coconuts to see. Uncivilized pictures that the newsreel takes of me. Bonga, 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 I don't want to leave the Congo, no, 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 no. Bingo, bango, bungle, I'm so happy in the jungle, I refuse to go. Don't want no bright lights, false teeth, doorbells, landlords, I make it clear that no matter how they coax me, I'll stay right here. They hurry like savages to get aboard an iron train. And though it's smoky and it's crowded, they're too civilized to complain. When they got two weeks vacation, they hurry to vacation ground. They swim and they fish, but that's what I do all year round. Bingo, bingo, bongo. Don't want no sales tax, gas tax, income tax, poll tax, bright lights, wall state, doorbells, landlords, jailhouse, shotgun, fish hooks, golf clubs. I got my spear, so no matter how they coax me, I'll stay right here. They have things like the atom bomb, so I think I stay where I am. Civilization, I'll stay right here.
Right on. All right, so I guess we can go right into our review now of, of our movie for this uh, week. And this is one picked by Daniels, The World, The Flesh, and The Devil from 1959. And uh, I'll let you uh, get into the uh, details here, Daniel, unless, unless you want to summarize, Paul, because I know you, <laughs> I know you did a, a really... Uh, I, uh, I want to hear Paul's summary first, and then I will uh, describe the, the film in a little bit more detail. Okay. If, uh, if if you'll allow that, Lee. Yeah. Okay. Paul, go. Okay. Here we go. Well, the the world, the flesh, and the devil. 1959. Uh, Ralph Burton is a miner who gets trapped for several days in a cave-in. When they finally, when he when he hears they stop working after six days, or think he freaks out and tries to get dig himself out. Once he finally gets out, he realizes that nobody is around. The world has been destroyed. He doesn't know why at first. So he travels around, basically going around just trying to find anybody. Finally founds in, in, a, in a, re- a recording that the world has been destroyed by a nuclear dust with a half-life of th- three, three or four days um, and deadly and deadly for, was it a half-life for six days, but deadly for three? It was something weird like that. Actually, I think uh, the half-life was like um, 56 days, hours. Or or, something, yeah, like, something, something like that. And then it, half-life like, was like two and a half days, and then it, yeah. it's non-deadly after five days. Yeah, yeah. non-deadly after five. Of course, the, the film has nuances of, this is an earlier film, by the way, but nuances of uh, Last Man on Earth, Last Woman on Earth by the end of it, and then film uh, the the great twilight episode with Burgess Meredith. Uh, if you have ever seen those, you'll get a film of, uh, idea of the film. Uh, he he wanders around ends up finding a woman named Sarah uh, who managed to survive with three friends. Unfortunately, there the two friends uh, walked out 2 days earlier and well, croak and then finds a man on a boat that comes in later in the film named Ben uh, I believe is it Ben um, Ben yeah, Ben Jackson right. yeah. um, who ends up uh, coming into the film later uh, there's a little bit of trepidation between race in the film much like you'll see in like Night of the Living Dead things like that uh, the main protagonist in the film Ralph is a uh, I thought at first he was like uh, you know uh, I was going to say the guy from I Love Lucy but he, apparently he's black so he he gave me like a, a a strange you know southern you know Caribbean guy I don't know because uh, he is the style of music he likes to sing and stuff the guitar he plays well in the that, film, that's Her- that's Harry Belafonte he's actually that's Harry Belafonte yeah, yeah and from, I didn't notice West. that at first yeah he is from that's, the West Indies so. okay so I was getting that vibe from him but and then so he's black in the film and then the the man uh, the woman is white he's also black in real life just to let you know yeah, there you go. in the film he's, well he's not really black in the film he's black and white so it's black and white film they have a little problem because the the man who shows up at the end ben he's a little bit of a prick and once the white woman unfortunately ben has developed relationships and feelings the whole deal and then it really turns into the last man on the uh, last woman on earth. If you ever watched that, that kind of mm-hmm. uh, fight him. I want the woman, you know, you can't have her. That kind of thing, and tries to kill Ralph, which was not really nice at all. Uh, but it, it has a nice uh, theme. It has a nice kind of twist at the end when with the fighting. And and this movie is uh, from 1959. I really think it has a lot of very touchy plot twists and and the story, and it's really well done. There's my little summer of it. It ends at a happy note. Just want to let you guys know. Everyone walks into the sunset happy. But uh, this was the worst summary in the world, so guys, have fun. Uh, Daniel, you want to chime in on that? Sure. Uh, actually, that's not a bad summary of the film, uh, despite no. the fact that I think uh, Paul basically watched it on Fast Forward. <laughs> Obviously, so so this uh, 
Harry Belafonte, I, I was kind of reading a little bit about the context of this film. Uh, Harry Belafonte was at uh, the height of his career at this point. Um, yeah. He released a big album. Uh, I mean, it went like multi-platinum sort of thing uh, this year. And uh, th- this was kind of, you know, the only, I'll, I'll be honest, the only other Harry Belafonte film I'd ever seen before watching this one was White mm-hmm. Man's Burden from yeah. the John Travolta thing from the 90s. Uh, Harry Belafonte is a uh, is even to this day a uh, very politically motivated guy. Um, he protested apartheid, apartheid in the 80s and uh, today he is uh, very uh, left wing and I I, I love that. So I, I, I did kind of read a little bit of some articles that he had he had uh, uh, written or some interviews that he'd done. Um, this is a film that is meant to kind of examine uh, race to some degree. I found it through actually an article on Jezebel, which Jezebel is often a yeah, it's a thing that I read occasionally. Um, it's kind of the the voice of wealthy white feminism to some degree. Um, they do a lot of uh, pop culture conversations that are uh, kind of bullshit, but you know uh, it, it's a it's a thing. Uh, but they, they did a really nice um, video, so I, I think I I don't know if I sent you the link, Lee, but they did uh, a no. uh, they did they did an article talking about this phrase "free white in 21." Yeah, and uh, I find myself uh, I I kind of consider myself fairly well educated about. Um, kind of vestiges of racism and pop culture, uh, but this was not something I'd ever heard of, um, and so I, I actually did kind of read this article with some interest. I'll send you the link so you can put it in the show notes. Right on. And they have a video uh, connected to this where they kind of string together a bunch of usages of this phrase, free, white, and 21, which is used in the film. A lot of the point of the film, I mean, you know, the, the kind of broad strokes, I agree 100% with what Paul says about the broad strokes of the film, but a lot of the point of the film is in the details. I do want to get into some of the details as we as mm-hmm. we dig in a little bit further. It kind of fits into this cozy catastrophe idea. Um, if you've ever seen Day of the Triffids, um, this is yeah. sort of a, a genre where the idea is the world ends, but everybody's kind of okay. Like, the world ends, but if you survive, I mean, you know, you kind of have a little bit of problem getting power, and you might have a little bit of problem like, oh, i got to move... The, my car or whatever, but but essentially, like the whole point was to use the end of the world as a way of examining uh, social strata and, and kind of social conversation. And I think in some ways it, it plays into even uh, the original Night of the Living Dead. Sort of ends up being we're trapped in this house, the zombies are, are outside, we can't leave. But ultimately, it's kind of an examination of the way that these kind of social classes interact. Yeah. And um. That film was obviously much more horror. This isn't that. I mean, the whole point is like there are no bodies anywhere. There's no well, um, I, 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 disarray. That's I, the biggest thing is where the bodies are. I'll just cut in for a second. I, I'd argue this this movie isn't even really sci-fi. <laughs> so no, no, no. this this is very uh, abstract. I mean, this this, yeah. this is not. This is this is we're positing a world where there are only three people left in North America. Well, then also too is I mean this is the this is the radio. This is the beginning of the radioactive movement for films, playing with the radioactive ideas to make. Because right after this, Atomic Age, everything came out in the in the early '60s. I don't know if I'd say it's the beginning. I mean, you do see some. Uh, I mean, the the whole atomic war motif starts. I mean, after 1945. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, this is 
uh, as far as film goes, um, and I'm sorry to cut in here, but I'd say this is sort of like the tail end of the nuclear devastation kind of thing, mm-hmm. and it's sort of it's sort of like Paul saying with the 60s and stuff, sort of transcends more into like uh, radioactive mutants and radioactive yeah. stuff like that, sure. like. That genre sort of expanded from that. I mean, you did have some some examples like uh, them and stuff like that in the fifties that definitely are exclusively about like you know radioactive monsters and shit. But this is sort of like the tail end of the the, the original post apocalyptic for the sort of sci fi idea with nuclear. The funniest uh, thing for me is watching this film. I've watched a lot of Night of the Living Dead stuff, and the film that this that. George Romero based Night of the Living Dead off that, that inspired him to make that is Last Man on Earth with Vincent yeah. Price. Why this film wasn't mentioned, I got no idea because this is exactly, to, in my eyes, Night of the Living Dead in a city. And I was just like, wow, I've never heard of this film. Why hasn't this film been mentioned a thousand times on like Night of the Living Dead you know, things and stuff? Because... To me, this is. Well, I understand like there's ghouls and stuff in the in the um, Last Man on Earth, but this film has the tension aspect of socio-economical things that that Night of the Living Dead really like is saturated with. So I'm I'm glad that that you you meant you uh, had me watch this film. All right, continue on there, Daniel. Sorry to uh, interrupt. Oh, sure, sure. I I wasn't fuck trying you, to. Fuck you, Daniel. Yeah, yeah. Fuck me. That's fine. I, you know me. <laughs> when I start getting on a rant, I'll just I'll just talk forever. You know. But um, no. What what I found uh, interesting about the film, and I'll and I'll kind of uh, to, just to place this into a genre or to kind of put it in a bigger perspective, I think that what you see um, a lot of times is that uh, you know science fiction kind of approaches a topic in terms of, like, written material. So there's a lot of, like, stuff kind of written about it. Um, this reminded me a little bit of, there's a, a short story actually from 1940 written by Robert Heinlein called Solution Unsatisfactory, which is uh, all about, like, uh, before there was even a nuclear bomb. You know, So this is five years before uh, Hiroshima. Uh, he wrote a story where essentially... There's this production of uh, radioactive dust that they just spray over cities and like kill everybody in the cities. It's sort of, yeah. sort of if you've ever read that short story, it's in uh, it's in one of his short story collections. I think it's in uh, Requiem or possibly uh, The Pastor Tomorrow. But I can, yeah, I, I, can I, give I, you a, I think it is Requiem. I, I have read it. It's been reprinted a lot of times. So yeah, it's been reprinted it. a lot of times. It's one of those classic short stories. So this idea is pretty old, but kind of what you see is like the science fiction writers get a hold of it and they do like oh we're going to do like a kind of straight science fiction version of it and then other writers kind of discover it and then like 20 years later you get people kind of like saying okay we're going to take this idea and then do something else with it so I agree with Paul to the degree I mean so I hate Paul Paul's a terrible person thank um, you <laughs> I'm just going to say that no uh, what I I agree that like the uh, Lee you said this isn't science fiction I agree and disagree because it isn't science fiction to the degree that like this isn't supposed to be realistic by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. This is meant to be we're setting up a what if. What if there are three people left in New York City, essentially. Yeah. Everything follows from that. But it is science fiction in the sense that it is asking that what if and then like exploring that premise to some degree. Well, yeah, um, I mean, I guess you can call it science fiction in a very base level where it, it takes a so, sort of a social economic problem of some sort of the current time 
and it presents it in some sort of semi-futuristic or at least very skewed uh, way where, you know, like, um, you, you talk about racism, but you involve aliens in it. That that makes it science fiction, right, quote-unquote, right, right. you know. I'll just, just chime in here just, just very briefly. I'll say that... Uh, this was based on two different pieces of uh, science fiction. Uh, it, it was based on the novel The Purple Cloud by M.P. Scheele and the story End of the World by Ferdinand Rayher. I have not read either of these, but uh, these were both, I guess, early works of science fiction that this was loosely based upon. So, uh, I did uh, I did actually, just, just to, uh, because you did mention The Purple Cloud, I and that one is... Uh, Mentioned in the uh, in the credits of the, of the mm-hmm. film, I I did kind of look it up on the um, SF Encyclopedia uh, on the on the internet on the interwebs thing that you might know about. Yeah, if you listen to a podcast, I would assume you know <laughs> on the internet is. Um, I did check it out on the uh, SF Encyclopedia, and uh, it actually is you can read it for free on Project Gutenberg. Yep. and there is a, a plot summary of it. Um, you know, ultimately this is the sort of thing to where. They got the rights for this thing and then used that as like, oh, yes, we based our film on this, but it has very little to do with it. Yeah. Uh, the Purple Cloud, if you read the plot summary, is all about uh, this guy who finds himself alone in the world and then builds a city and rebuilds it like six or seven times, and it's all about his megalomania. It's really more like Aguirre, the Wrath of God. So uh, I did read a little bit of it. I read you know the first uh, you know ten pages just to kind of get a feel for the writing. This is very much its own thing, and I think um, owes itself more to kind of that cozy catastrophe genre than it does to something like The Purple yeah. Cloud. What I found interesting about this, I mean, Paul was kind of uh, uh, making fun of the structure to some degree. I mean, it is, oh yeah, dude walks around for 30 minutes and, and looks at stuff. Um, yeah. I, 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 I mean, it is absolutely that. But that, that is expected. That there is no question that's what happens in the first 30 minutes of the film. I, what I found interesting is that was you could kind of view it as the first 30 minutes are a, a man finds himself alone in the world mm-hmm. and what he does with no social structures at all. Just how does he how does he choose to spend his time? So you see him kind of being silly. He puts shadows on a wall. He uh, builds a train set. He, he, he amuses himself. He, he finds what he thinks is important and does it. Uh, once he finds one other person, then suddenly there is an interaction between those two people, and there is a conversation. Suddenly, uh, social structures, expected roles, uh, you know, black, white, male, female, etc., come into play. Once there's a third person involved, suddenly there is this element of competition. There is this element of there are uh, resources that we both want, um, and you know, then you can get into the kind of feminist side of, like, the woman uh, definitely is treated as an object by both of these men. It's very much a, a commentary on these individual people and who they are, but it's really about how we interact as a society, and I think that's kind of where it connects into that kind of science fiction thing. It is it is about looking at, in, a, in, a, in this kind of microcosmic way, how we examine our own structures in society. So yeah. um, that's um, what I found fascinating about it. I have yeah, to say, it, my favorite character in the movie is Snotgrass. 
Snodgrass. <laughs> <laughs> and and I gotta say, Harry Belafonte is a- absolutely fucking excellent in this film. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's a very underrated actor. I mean, I think one of the reasons that his career did not go as far as it did as far as acting goes is um, he was still in the studio system at that point and as much as people don't want to admit it, there was sort of the designated Negro actor. It, it was it was Sidney Poitier. It was not fucking Harry Belafonte. It was Sidney Poitier. And he's the better actor, I, I would say. But um, I, You I, only I, get one. There's that token. You know, there's, yeah, only, there's I, only one Negro, really. Like, if and, you're... And I think Harry Belafonte, basically, he, he wanted to do movies like that, and there just wasn't really the opportunity for him to do a lot of movies like that in the studio system, so he sort of just w- went back to his music or whatever. Early on, he's really good in this. The stuff with the mannequin with Snodgrass, uh, you can see sort of semi-reflections of that in the uh, I Am Legend with Will Smith in, what, 2007, I think it was, um, mm-hmm. where he's, he's got mannequins set up in, like, the video rental store that he talks to every day. He goes down, talks to them, and rents movies and shit. You know, it's got that sort of angle of he's trying to keep his sanity by, you know, pretending these people are real and talking to them and shit. Very, very good. If you, if you want to get, like, this is kind of allegorial, so you can kind of forgive the fact that a lot of this shit just doesn't not make sense. Like, where are the dead bodies? Like, they, they make the explanation that, oh, everyone evacuated the city. Even if there was an evacuation order in that city, there would still be dead bodies everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, just just on the fact. I kind of I kind of worked on the assumption that the magical poison dust just dissolved the bodies as well. Yeah, uh, like, well, I just kind of I just kind of went on the. Okay, yeah, it, it doesn't. I mean, the idea that there's a sodium isotope that is radioactive on those scales like doesn't make sense anyway. Yeah. So the the magical sodium radioactive dust uh, then dissolved the bodies. Okay, done. Yeah, but 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 here's the thing. Like, okay, no bodies. Um, ben and Sarah both should have not survived if this was that bad. I mean, Sarah, she said the two people that she was with in the decompression chamber to survive went out early. She would have been exposed and died. Yeah, she wouldn't be in the decompression chamber anymore then, technically. No. Yeah, she, she well, would Unless there's, like, an airlock in between. Uh, you know. <laughs> now, you're getting sci-fi on me. And I, I think... I'm not like, saying it makes sense. I'm just saying, no, like, that's kind of the, the, the version in, of my head. In, in today's like, world... In today's world, they would already have a part two and find out that they all turned into mole people and went underground for a couple of years to come out and take over the world. See? Yeah, yeah. That's what they would do now. In the M. Night Shyamalan version, everybody moved to New Jersey, and, you know, they were all just watching to see, you know. Twist! There's the twist! And we all know no one moves to New Jersey. Yeah, yeah, that's fucking implausible as hell. That's more implausible <laughs> than anything in this movie. No, and I'm not I'm not putting these things out to try to criticize the movie. I'm just saying, like, if people no, want to watch this... there's if, holes. There's a little hole there now again. It's yeah, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just pointing out if people want to watch this movie, they have to go into it knowing that it's much more allegorial than anything else. So you can't go in expecting it to be, like, a hard sci-fi... Oh um, no no no! no not that makes sense, right? It's not. It's not meant to be that. It's meant to be an examination of these three people and the social structures that surround them, and in yeah. particular, the I, racism, both internalized and externalized. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I that that's a good point because uh, I've seen a lot of like reviews of this that people say like racism is like a major component of this, and I kind of disagree because I don't like. I've seen a lot of people explicitly say that um, Mel uh, Ferrer's uh, character of Vincent Thacker is a racist. And I totally fucking disagree. 
I don't think he's necessarily a racist at all. There's mm-hmm. there's definitely some he's definitely a chauvinist, but not a racist. Yeah, he's definitely well. He's a fucking rapist. Like, let's just put it that way. But <laughs> who is but, but he but he is not necessarily a racist. I think the racism thing comes more from Harry Belafonte's character, yeah, it Ralph, because he he internalizes. Right. Mm-hmm. And then acts out on his own, basically his experience with a, a racist system. He definitely interests in Sarah. He wants to court her, but at the same time, there's these social pressures on him that he's experienced throughout his life that yeah. are coming down on him, making go, "Oh no, Mrs. You, I can't sit with you on in supper. I'm here. I'm just your host. I'm just gonna find you a good white man to team up with at some point in this world." You know, like well, it, well, that is after she uses the uh, free white and twenty one line. Like, and I yeah. think that's a clear dividing point in the film. Um, if you if you look at the direction of that, you know, she says the line, and in her mind, she's saying, "I'm I'm free. I can do what I want." But just the mention, just the just that yeah, kind of internalized. I would not disagree that Harry Belafonte's character <laughs> is uh, acting upon the inside uh, the the internalized racist structures. Mm-hmm. I think that all three of the characters in this film are both are are all working on both the internalized racist racist and misogynistic structures of their yeah. society. They're just brainwashed structures of what they've already got ingrained in their system. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think that, like, uh, the, the Malfaria character is a, a, the, a white southern man about to go lynch uh, the no. black dude, well, no, but I think he was... that he, he believes that he deserves the girl because, like, hey, I'm the white guy and I can, mm-hmm. I can do what I want. Even when they're, like, watching movies that, like, uh, Ralph is projected into the apartment, Ralph is sitting on the stairs, like, operating the projector, whereas Mel is sitting with his drink and everything. Like, there is this very clear, like, this is what my role is. Is sort of thing among all three of them. Well, I, I think I think the problem is that, like you say, she says the free white twenty one thing, and that triggers something in Belafonte's character where he's like, okay, that sort of sort of reinforces the sort of stereotypes and the things I've seen throughout my entire life. So I'm going to start acting in this way, and the fact that he sort of acts in this way to a certain degree reinforces Vincent Thacker's uh, ideas of sort of social structure to the point where he's like, okay, well, if he's going to be acting this way. He's obviously maybe not interested in Sarah. I'm going to go after her. And I don't think it's necessarily inherent racism or, you know, uh, implicit racism. It's just miscommunication more than anything else. I think all three of them just don't know how to really communicate with each other openly to any real degree, honestly, throughout basically most of the fucking film. Yeah. I like I like how in the film the uh, the catalyst for all the trouble is actually the same person that is the glue that keeps the whole thing together is uh, is the is Sarah. She she does a good job. She she's not purposely trying to cause shit, but the shit's getting caused because it doesn't really matter at the end whether they're racist or not racist or if they're black or if they're white. He has something the other guy wants. She's the problematic situation where I want well, this, I'm taking it. But at the same time, she is, she's such a great person and role in the film that she still is like, would you not get the fuck off? I like you, I like you, I don't care, this and that. And she has. She really keeps the film together and keeps them from kill, not killing each other pretty well. She does a really good job, and I don't want to underrate her as the, in the film either. Not at all, not at all. I think it's a... I think it's a it's a, it's a trio of really great performances. And, it is. You know, yes, the film does take its time kind of getting to this situation and, and kind of getting to the point. Uh, I think a, a kind of modern-day version of this would, would cut down that, that kind of first 30 minutes into about 15, and then you'd, uh, you'd get... 
a little bit more time with uh, the third guy just to just to kind of uh, mm-hmm. get a little bit better sense of who he is as a person. Uh, I do think that it's a film where where on the writing and the direction, I think it is uh, just some of the staging and that sort of thing. It is meant to be very closely observed. It's meant to be something that is not uh, like everything happens for a reason. Every scene between these people, among these people, exists for a reason. And I think it is something that we can um, view in different ways. I mean, I kind of view it as a little bit more uh, racially motivated, um, as mm-hmm. I think you guys do. Um, I view the the, the misogyny, the, the kind of inbuilt misogyny of these of all three of these characters as a, as something that's kind of fundamental to what the film is, but I don't think we're required to see it that way. And I, and I think you can either view these characters as individual characters, like this dude is just this dude, or you can view it you can view them as symbols for a larger reality. And I think that's one of the strengths of the film. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, also, you have to basically have to take into context the fact that this was made in 1959. Mm-hmm, so there's right. there, there, there's definitely stuff that they just could not talk about on film that you know this this movie would never see the light of day if they actually tried to discuss it in that much well, detail. I, I looked into some of the detail of the the behind the scenes making of it um just very briefly uh, the other day. Mm-hmm. Belafonte really wanted there to be a love scene before the third guy shows up between mm-hmm. the two characters, at least a kiss. I think there there was originally talk that there was going to be a kiss. And that was uh, cut up, cut up by the, the the censors of the studio. Like they wouldn't let that happen. There was no. We're not going to no write inter- that in Horn Dog. We're not going. We're not going to let there be an interracial kiss on screen in this yeah, film. Yeah. Well, you see, and that would have dispelled a lot of the ambiguity, like between the characters. Like there, there definitely would have been a much more straightforward set, like uh, direction in the film. I mean, if if there if it was established that there was a much more strong relationship between Sarah and Ralph, it, it would have made for a lot more dramatic tension, I guess. Um, but at the same time, it would have, it probably would have left the film not as open to interpretation. So. I like the idea between the three, as I watch the film, I like the naturally blooming relationship between Harry and Ingrid than the entitled relationship between Mel and Ingrid. I'm using their real names, not their, you know, the stage names, sure. but it's, it's more a natural friendship relationship that it's developing and then when Mel gets in there, it's an entitled thing, and that's a big difference too, you know. Yeah. And then th- that that Absolutely. causes the trepidation between them. Probably my favorite lines in the film. I like the beginning of the film because it does show you can't get your apocalyptic nowhereville without showing a lot of him nowhere, you know, with mm-hmm. Noah and seeing how that internally how you change. I've spent a lot of time alone. You know, that sounds pathetic, but I have, <laughs> and you get weird a little bit. Well, I don't think it was weird, but you get a weird a little bit. And I like to see that how I was watching the film. I'm like, why isn't Sarah just going, oh, look, a person. High five. And she was watching because like, well, what? Do you think I was acting weird? Well, I was alone. What do you expect me to, to you know, to act like? And then he, in my his mind, he's alone. He doesn't have to worry about anybody thinking, oh, like, well, this guy's weird. This one's screwed up. I'm doing what I want. I talk to mannequins. It's not a big deal. I throw snotgrass because you're a murderer, Harry. You're a murderer. Well, yeah, it's not until he throws snotgrass over the balcony that she actually presents herself because she thinks that he's killed himself. Yeah, he killed himself, right. And then then when she's like, um, why didn't you come out before? Well, I thought, what, you thought I was weird. You know what I mean? And then he has to go back within himself and say, okay, calm down. We're still in a society, so we've got to put up all the society rules and borders and, and, you know, aesthetics and act a different way now pretty interesting. And that's only yeah, with yeah, one yeah. person in the scene extra. 
And that's the core of the film, ultimately. I, I think that that really is the point. That's why we spend so much time with Ralph at the beginning, is to see as he gradually realizes that there is no one else in the world. Okay, I, I do have a question, though, and I want to present to both of you, and I wonder if this is something that was actually intended in the film or if it's just me thinking about it. Some of the things that Ralph does are very weird. Like, once he meets Sarah, is is he... Like, even maybe subconsciously trying to keep keep her for himself, keep her away from the rest of the world, because there are, there, are, there are scenes in this film where he's on the radio, and he's trying to contact other people. He finally does find someone from France. The way he interacts with this person from France on the radio feels like he's trying to dismiss him in a way to convince himself that it's not really something important, and he can go back to his world uh, with the girl, because the, the person from France starts talking, it, the person from France specifically says does not understand English, is obviously speaking French, I mean you don't have to even be semi-educated to know when you hear fucking French and he talks over this person and cuts them off almost immediately and then goes back to Sarah and does actually doesn't even tell her that he's contact, he's gotten contact from these people until like I think later on in the film when Benson finally shows up so yeah. I'm I'm kind of wondering if like if that was implied or if that was just lazy writing. Uh, I I don't know I don't know. It could be a little bit of lazy writing, but or it could be the frustration of a lost cause. If you know what I'm saying, like I don't need to work out a, a language relationship with this person because I have her right here sitting next to me, and there's no way in hell I'm going to be able to get to France. Or I, I don't know. It could be a, like a strange lost cause kind of an ideal is uh, ideal. Or you could be right a little bit, like, you know, I don't want to deal with this, let's go back into my little world with my woman. I don't know. But it, to me, it's, it would seem more of a lost cause. Or, like, too much of a trouble. I know, I know that sounds weird because you're desperate for people, but, like, maybe that's what they were kind of playing off of. They found some other people, too, later, uh, a, th- a few yeah, thousand miles. Yeah, there was miles. some in, like, South America or something as well. Yeah, yeah. a thousand miles away, something like that, he said. Yeah, uh, I know. yeah no, I uh, I hadn't thought of that interpretation. I kind of interpreted that scene as him just like, oh, the, the thing is fading out. I'm trying to say I'm assuming that everyone can, can speak English sort of situation. Uh, even if you say he can't, let's saying like, oh, come meet me at 12 o'clock, you know, sort of thing. You know, I, I think it's interesting that we don't get a a resolution on that. I think that, that it is kind of left ambiguous, both kind of what Ralph is doing in that moment and sort of what the larger situation in the world is. Uh, I kind of interpret it as there are these little pockets of a handful of people left in the world all over the place. You know, <laughs> ultimately, you know, if we're talking about, like, the, the, the developing world, if you're talking about, you know, like, middle of Australia or middle of Africa or that sort of thing, um, they might not have even been exposed to this stuff to begin with. I mean, this yeah, may be yeah. an entirely right. kind of developed world situation. So, you know, we, we can't take at face value anything that we, we kind of here in the film, it's, it's uh, again, it's not meant to be realistic, but I think that, you know, it's very kind of possible that, you know, these three people are just fooling themselves. That yeah. they're literally the only people left alive that there are, you know, there could be, in somewhere in Iowa, there could be whole cities that didn't get touched by this stuff, you know, so... Um, yeah. Well, that, you actually bring up a good point, and I think I really got I know, to the bottom of the film. The bottom of the film really is the world's disdain of the French. <laughs> That's what this is. About. Oh, you're I French. Fuck off, man. Come on, isn't there somebody that speaks we, English we, on that we, side? We've pulled though? all the socio-economical bullshit, the sexist bullshit, all the bullshit aside. We got down to the fucking point. 
Fuck the French. <laughs> Where's the civilized people that are still Moving on! God damn it. I'll get both of your like final thoughts on this film, and then I just want to I want to mention a couple of other films as well that people might be interested in uh, that's, that are related to this. And uh, I'll go for your, uh, you first, Daniel. Uh, what are your sort of final thoughts on this film? I think if you've listened this far and you're interested at all in the, in what what's going on, I think this is absolutely worth watching. It does kind of fit into that cozy catastrophe thing pretty well. Um, Belafonte is amazing. I think there's some. I mean, there are three people in this movie, and all three are do a really phenomenal job in terms of performance. Uh, it's directed well. Some of the sequences, I mean, just the the uh, photography and the kind of empty streets, uh, we didn't really talk about, about a lot of that stuff, but uh, both at the very beginning, the, the first kind of 30 minutes, and then the kind of final shootout at the end, um, there's a lot of really brilliant photography in these in this kind of empty city. It sells this world very well. Um, it is It is a work of cinema. This isn't, I mean, I think that, you know, it could from our conversation, it might be misinterpreted as this kind of like, oh, it's it's kind of three people in a room sort of conversation. Um, the middle of the film is kind of that, but I, I think that uh, it is it is worth watching as a film. Above all, if if any of this sounds interesting to you, you should probably check it out. It's only ninety four minutes long, and uh, I, I think it's really compelling. So uh, check it out. Yeah, you can find it on uh, YouTube in two different ways, like it's split in parts and you can also pay for it, and it's also what was the uh, site you linked video? If you, if, you, if you Google it, you can find it. It's yeah. just one of those. I mean, I, I don't know how long it's even going to be up, but if you Google the title and, and get a video search, you can you can probably find it. Um, this would be one I, I might even be worth buying on DVD if I was... Uh, if if I was uh, just kind of kind of be like yeah I'd watch this enough times to own it on DVD it's it's probably worth it I'd have to check and see what special features are if there was a an, uh, like even a 15 minute documentary or something I I think it would totally be worth owning so yeah uh, Paul your thoughts I like this movie quite a bit I'm definitely gonna buy it one of my favorite scenes in the film where it actually gets really heavy not the shooting it's not when it's it's alone with um, Sarah and Ralph. It's the haircut scene. Did you notice oh, like a lot yeah. of very that. tension? There's a lot of sexual tension between Ralph. He's very frustrated. There's a lot of stuff going on, and I think he's just frustrated. I don't know if he's ever cut a woman's hair before. I mean, that's frustrating in general. In general, you know, women can be crazy, but you know, it's <laughs> in general. I mean, that was uh, I was just like, I'm whoa. I kind of don't have. I mean, you know, it's not a really extreme scene if you look at a lot of other movies, but I mean, I was feeling a lot of tension in that scene. Almost to the point, like when he was snipping by the ears, I, I kind of wanted to look away because I was like, "Oh man, this is uncomfortable." No, that that's definitely a a love scene. Like like let's just yeah, I mean, there, that, that is a well, there there's both sexual and racial tension because it, again, it comes out from Ralph's character inside himself that society's pressures sort of make it feel like okay, I, I I'm attracted to her. At the same time, it feels like I'm fulfilling some sort of servant role, and it just feels very weird and twisted and perhaps wrong. And mm-hmm. yeah, there, 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 there's definitely a lot more nuance in this film than mm-hmm. I think a lot of people give credit to. I think there's a, it's, there's a lot more deeper issues. I think uh, a lot of the reviews I wa- I sort of read after watching the film, a lot of people sort of focused on like intensely racist issues, like saying they like the saying flat out that Benson was like a racist which I don't I don't buy for a fucking minute no. um and basically just talking about all the implausibilities and I mean you got to go into this looking at it as in more of an allegorial thing than uh, something like a hard science fiction again 
And, I mean, you you got to look past that stuff. I mean, there there's plenty of plausibilities as well in The Last Man on Earth and The Omega Man and all that stuff. I mean, right. if you're going to criticize this movie for that stuff, then I think you're probably watching the movie for the wrong reasons to begin Benson with. Benson really wanted to, really, really fast, too, create exactly what he had before he, before he yeah. lost everything. Yeah. And that's what was going on. It wasn't. If you want to say that Benson was a racist because he wanted this and this and this, that means every white American was racist back in the day, or like that was evil, was well, evil, well, and a horrible person. Yeah, and I, I, I would point. kind of. Is and and he wanted, and I was watching it, especially near the end. Near Benson was was going around this and that, you know, you know, with his little uh, scotch and everything. I'm like, okay, I'm watching Leave It to Beaver all of a sudden. No, like anything, I was trying, he was trying to build the that that lever to beaver lifestyle with the, the wife and this, and the picket fence, and the two kids. There were two and a half kids. I don't know how you get the half, but something in there. <laughs> and you know that was definitely going on. And I think that was the motivation of Benson, not to hate Bear, uh, Harry because he well, was different. I, I would I would uh, just just point out that racism doesn't have to be the like hang a guy from a rope kind of racism. That that the that the uh, sort of, uh, well, I'm the white guy, I want my woman, and I want my scotch, and I want to sit and watch my movies, and I want to kind of be in charge, and I don't really want to take consideration of this other guy's feelings. Well, is itself a, a kind of form of, of racism, and whether it's, whether it's subtle, whether it's, I mean, ultimately we don't have another person to watch how he interacts with another white dude. Yeah. The only thing I was going to say is the, I think the film would have been, it would have played out the same way if Harry was white, because it doesn't matter what, if we're different or not in the end, it matters if you have something I want. And that's what's really going to drive the human nature to hate each other and kill each other and do stupid things and stuff like that. I think the worst thing that that Ben did in the whole movie, to me... Well, not shooting. Shooting's bad. Don't do that. But the worst (laughs) thing that that, uh, the, the conversation he had with Sarah... I'm man, you woman. Got it? And I'm like, dude, you're a dick. Well, yeah, here's the thing. It, it is much more a, a sexist uh, thing than it is racist at all. Here's the thing I think a lot of people miss when they watch the film. Uh, a lot of the critics I've sort of read who've watched the film, I think they miss the fact that Ben flat out asked Sarah right from the start, are you two together? Is Are you two in a relationship? And when she says basically no, then he pursues her. I mean, that's the thing. He, he, it's all... He views... <laughs> He views Ralph as he doesn't view Ralph as someone lower than him. He views Ralph as an equal and a rival for for Definitely Sarah's affections. Definitely a rival. And, well, and, well, I I I think you could argue that. I I I think I've had my say on that. I'm not I'm not gonna to push that. But um, I think it, it definitely he he views. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they both treat Sarah as an object. There, well, they no do, yeah. yeah, yeah. This is definitely, what did they say, two's company, three's a crowd yeah. aspect? Yeah, the the third although, man. Although by the end, it feels like three might not be a crowd, although that's kind of unrealistic as well, considering everything that's sort of built up to it. You kind of feel like after, after the final shot, probably it's not going to play out the way they try to present it, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, they really had a walk away into the sunset holding hands, and I was waiting for a little skip. A little skip, a little skip in the in the sunset. I was waiting for I'm like, this isn't, whoa, where did I, I came up and Toto came home and everything like that. They, they I didn't they expect that kind of 
they treat it as a kind of unambiguously happy moment, and I think mm-hmm. that it is a, a weakness of the film is is that, yeah. that kind of very ending. It, it is sort of like, oh, and now we all gonna go skip off and we're, we're happy. I, I that that's that's definitely not realistic. But I think the idea that uh, maybe through this conflict we've learned to uh, reject some of those social structures, and we've learned to appreciate each other as people, and we all need to work together to try to uh, figure out how to go forward in this. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the ultimate message, and I think yeah. that that's definitely a uh, a kind of a leftist liberal message in terms of right. like let's embrace our differences, but embrace each other as people. I do think it's pretty interesting that both Ralph and Ben had numerous chances to kill each other. Yeah, they did. I mean, numerous chances, and they just never did. You know what I mean? Like, and I think that's the thing is there's a couple times there. I don't think in the storyline you don't. I don't know if you get this. You just think Ben's a bad shot. I don't think he's purposely hitting him, missing him on purpose. If you know, I mean, I think he's missing him on purpose half the time. Yeah, I I don't. I don't think any any of the people in this film are bad people. I think they're all. They're all just common fucking people, and they're, they're all human beings. And human yeah, beings yeah. are we're we're a mix of angels and devils, and it's yeah. it's a it's always a, you know, what which side of your nature do you let uh, live out? I, I think that uh, yeah, that's kind of where I land on it. I, again, it's almost uh, I, I will say I've actually enjoyed having this conversation with you guys more than I enjoyed even watching the film. I think it is a film that's talking cool. about is pretty good. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll say the I'll say the same. I mean, to just basically to sum up my thoughts on the film, I liked it. I think it's kind of slow in parts, but I think this is actually a film that sort of uh, brings up this kind of discussion, which I think is pretty goddamn useful. And I think that is probably the biggest strength of this film is that it's got a lot of really interesting ideas. You can definitely take a lot of different things from it and actually discuss between you and your friends what you think of this film and I think that alone makes it worth watching. So yeah. It's pretty interesting to see a film that makes your mind work just as much or even more after the film's done. And uh, I just want to uh, finish off this with uh, a couple uh, mentions of films. Uh, there was a film from 1951 called Five uh, which is sort of a precursor to this idea uh, much more a racial element in that film. The acting is uh, just light years worse than the acting you see in this film, but it's still kind of an interesting film at the same time. Uh, it does sort of uh, a precursor to a lot of the same ideas that you see in this film. Uh, again, it's sort of a nuclear post-apocalyptic kind of film. Another one I mentioned is On the Beach from 1959, which is an excellent fucking film. Uh, that one also sort of talks about a lot of the same issues and a lot of the ideas. Uh, that one does a much better job of uh, showing the sort of impending doom and dread because in that one, it's essentially the nuclear holocaust has not quite touched a certain part of the earth yet. It, eventually it is going to kill everybody and it's basically how the last sort of people on the earth sort of deal with each other and the impending doom of their own lives. Uh, very, very well done. It's based on a story called On the Beach as well, which is a fantastic uh, story that everyone should read. And I'll also mention The Quiet Earth from 1985, which is a sort of unofficial remake of this film, which is basically exactly the same idea. Uh, you have this uh, white scientist who is indirectly 
well, kind of directly and indirectly responsible for the end of the world, and he encounters another white woman, and they encounter a black man. Her desires uh, fluctuate between the two of them, and there's a conflict, and it's actually kind of dealt out with a bit more explicit nuance that they basically could not do in 1959, so... Uh, the Quiet Earth, I, I've recommended this film before on the podcast, which is a fantastic film that I think we should cover at some point. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just end it at that. Anything else you guys want to say about this film before we get on to our, uh, our final Ralph, stuff Ralph is one handy SOB. He if is. All yeah. the stuff that he built and made and got to work and things like that, and he did a he did he did a pretty damn good job. I mean, I know we've talked about the film pretty extensively, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, overall, it's pretty damn good. I like, um, you know, even the hardest spots. He tries to break his uh, his seriousness with a carefree, you know, sing song. He's good at it. They put it in there for a reason. I understand that. Yeah, well, but, see, uh, the soundtrack's all Hall- Harry Belafonte too. <laughs> Harry, exactly. <laughs> What a coincidence! But uh, I mean, it's it's a good film. I definitely recommend it to anybody who likes those films. Um, and it's not a horror film, and it's not a sci-fi film. It's one of those films that you can just put into the good film section. Uh, but like, I don't really throw Jaws into a horror film. I throw it into just one of those damn good films. And I would put this one in there. I really like it. Uh, if you like, even if you like uh, more horror-based things like Night of the Living Dead or The Crazies or anything like that, I think you should watch this one. I think you'd really enjoy it. Uh, and obviously, you know, obviously there's, there's no the bodies out anywhere. Think how much uh, money they save by not doing that. <laughs> so, yeah. other than that, just good, good film. Uh, the only thing I'll say is this is uh, a contender for my ten best of the year. Honestly, I, I liked this right one. On. So, you know, and I'll cool. just leave it at that. All right. Daniel, tell us about your Doctor Who podcast. Sure. Well, uh, if you like listening to me talk about uh, science fiction and things that are maybe science fiction and maybe not. And if you're a, a fan of Doctor Who, which just came re-premiered tonight, uh, you can go listen to my podcast, Oi Spaceman, which you can find at oispaceman.libson.com. We do new series and classic. Uh, we talk a lot about left-wing politics and feminism and racism and imperialism and colonialism, but we also talk about bad special effects and uh, we make some dick jokes, so it's it's fun. So check it out. <laughs> right on, uh, Paul. Where can people find you on the interwebs? You can find me on YouTube, PA Brew News, one word to talk about beer and all that uh, that stuff. And then uh, you can find me on Facebook, PA Brew and News. If you want to hear some underground black metal stuff like that, go to my YouTube channel, Funeral Dust Six Six Six. Awesome, and I'm not sure. I'm not quite sure about the uh, scheduling yet, but uh, the next big series we're going to be doing on the podcast is going to be Italian horror. Uh, we're going to get do a little discussion, find out what we're going to do, and I uh, have to figure out my personal schedule and try to synchronize that with uh, both of these gentlemen. It might run out of October into November, depending on how things. F- happen, but that is going to be the next series we do is going to be Italian Horror. We're going to pick a couple of different directors, and we're going to pick some key movies uh, from them, and we're going to, we're going to talk about them. We're going to review the fuck of those movies, and that's going to be the next big thing on the podcast. Uh, but until then, thank you very much, guys, for listening to us. You can send all your comments and questions to us. You'll get the information at the end. We definitely encourage people to send comments to us, tell us that we're crap, tell us that we're awesome. Suggest movies for us to review because we're very open to that. We do have a couple ones that sort of on the queue that we're going to get to eventually, depending on how we schedule things around. And, yeah, thank you very much, Daniel, and thank you very much, Paul, for joining me tonight. Yep, another good one. Thanks Thanks for having having us. Yeah, this is fun. All make, right. sure you, make sure you guys get your, your masks, your gloves, and sharpen your knives because next month is yellow time. Exactly. 
<laughs> All right, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For our other episodes, links to Daniel, Paul, and Lee's other stuff, and links to some great podcasts of similar interest, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can leave us comments on the site or directly email us. We listen and respond to everything. Thank you. Drive through.